So this is one of the Bible's most famous, uh, most retold stories, isn't it? it? It's led to Hollywood films, plays, countless books. It's a firm favorite of children's toys. Back in the crash, they have a Noah's Ark. It's regularly stuffed in children's mouths. Uh, Sunday school teachers tell the story regularly. It's a, it's a favorite in some weird way. And the pictures are often the same, aren't they? There's uh, Noah, cute zoo animals on a boat with a jolly fat old man who looks a little bit like Santa there, uh, with the sun shining overhead, a rainbow in the background. It looks a little bit like Madagascar. If you've seen that film, Madagascar, Dr. Doolittle, that's often how it seems to be uh, when we think of the story of Noah and the ark. Or people go the other way. They see it as the story of a violent, vengeful, wrathful, angry God who just hates people. Maybe that's you today. Maybe many people who don't follow Jesus, they may just say the God of the Old Testament, the God right back here in Genesis is just like a petulant child with a magnifying glass, burning ants out of sheer pleasure. Maybe that's you sitting here today. Maybe that's what you think about the God of the Bible as you read this. Well, as we look at the big picture of the Bible story these next few months, we're going to see, and we have seen already, how God created the earth. It was good. It was very, very good. Last week, though, we saw how sin entered the world, how mankind rebelled against God, and God rightly punished mankind. And in the chapters since, chapters four, chapters five, it's got worse. We see in chapter four the first murder. I encourage you to go back and read through and read the bits in between as we go through the series. And as we get to chapter six, and years and years after Adam and Eve, we get this devastating summary of the human race, don't we? Verse five, let me read. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So in this context, we get the story of Noah and the ark. And it's a story, as I kind of hinted to at the start, I think we've sensitized. Uh, instead of pictures like this, it's more like this. It's bleak. We don't tell bedtime stories about tsunamis or genocide, but we do tell this one. We, we've sensitized this story. We've made it cuter and safer. We've maybe tried to fit God into a box which we like as opposed to the way the Bible depicts him. And we're going to wrestle with that a little bit today, about why we maybe do that. And it's a, a big passage. We're going to look at it in three, three sections as we try and navigate our ways through it. So do keep your Bibles open. So firstly, as we look at the first few verses, verses 5 to 7, we're going to see God's judgment on mankind is real, it's total, and it's deserved. Let me read those verses again, 5 to 7, as we think about why God sent the flood. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of a human heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made, it, made them. See it there? God saw the wickedness of humans. He saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all of the time. He regretted that he made humans. Ouch. It's not pleasant reading, is it? 
You see, Noah's floods, it isn't just a simple Sunday school story about cute animals and rainbows. Real people died. Real sin was punished with a real flood. It, it would have been utterly devastating. Um, I spent a bit of time when I was growing up in India and I was involved in doing some relief work after the 2004 tsunami. When I was pondering what this flood would have been like, uh, this came to mind. That is a picture of the back of the tsunami. That's what it looked like. It was total. It was brutal. There was an extreme loss of life. Mankind did not deserve God's world anymore. Remember that's Genesis 1, that beautiful creation. Mankind did not deserve it anymore. So God was going to wipe it all away and start again. The sin which had begun in Genesis 3, and remember Lanx's definition of sin last week? Um, he said, it's not greed, it's not envy, it's not lying, it's for direct rebellion against God as we reject him and as we reject his word. That's just continued again and again and again, and now God's patience has run out. As we were reminded last week, it's personal and it's completely our fault. We so often make it abstract, don't we? Sin, I know I do. We, we talk about it, we maybe even talk about our sin, but we don't recognize the real nature of it. J.C. Ryle, a preacher, he once said, a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. A right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. And we need to keep grasping this. I know I so very much need to keep grasping this. If we're ever going to really grasp the good news of the gospel, we must get the ugliness of our sin. If we never admit we don't just do bad things, but that we are indeed bad, the gospel will never land in its power in our lives. So I read verse 5, and maybe you read verse 5, and I go, wow, it must have been bad back then. Wow, they were bad. Verses at the start when we read, when they're intermarrying between some the Nephilim, we don't know much about them, but there's odd stuff going on. They're breaking God's law. Every inclination of their thoughts was evil all the time. Phew, glad I wasn't there back then. But the Bible does not let us think like that. Without Christ, we're just like this. And so the Bible says the just and right punishment for this is death. I wonder who in this story, when it's read, you most identify with? So often in Bible stories, we like to make ourselves the hero of the story, don't we? We want to make ourselves knower in this story. But as we're going to see in a minute, except for the wonderful grace of God, we are not. I wonder, do you get this? Do, do you feel this? Do we feel the seriousness of our sin? Our, our, our love for God otherwise is just going to be weak. If we don't grasp what we're actually like, if we don't grasp who we actually are, we won't worship God as he is due. And getting a right and true view of who God is and what he is like is so important. American preacher A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This book is about God. This whole big picture of this book is about God. And we're seeing here an aspect of his character, which we may just be a bit shocked about. But I want you to stop now. Stop now, 30 seconds, close your eyes. And just do this for me. Bring to mind God and what you think he's like. 30 seconds on your own. Bring to mind God. 
Good. Now, when you think of God, when you read this story, did you skip over the part in verse 17? When it says, God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. We want to skip over that, don't we? When we list the characteristics of God, we can list them now. God is loving. Amen. God is kind. Of course he is. God is merciful. He is good. He is mighty. He is powerful. All true. God is wrathful. We leave it out. Or maybe we go, well, that was the God of the Old Testament, but that's not the God I worship now. Maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus today, you think that you're hopeful that maybe God isn't like that. Maybe it put you off exploring God before. But no, God is wrathful and he is angry about sin. And he's angry about the terrible damage it's done to his creation. And this is right and this is good. As we looked at last week, every sin is an act of rebellion and saying, no, God, I'm going to live as God. I'm going to live in place of you and I'm going to live as I want to live rightly results in his wrath, not abstractly, not just back then, but now. But we don't think this characteristic is worthy of God, do we? Why? It's a good question. Clever people have clever answers. Here's Andrew Wilson. He's a pastor in Brighton. He gives three helpful reasons, I think, and it's really helpful just to look at them as to why we're confused that maybe God can be like this, maybe why we've ignored it in the past. Firstly, it could be because we think the Old Testament and New Testament is a different God. And what this does is it shows a, a failure of us to grasp why Jesus actually died. Jesus' death on the cross did not say it's all okay because God is not angry with sin anymore. It said God is so incredibly angry with sin, so angry that Jesus dying on the cross is the only way to save you. It's the same God. Secondly, maybe we could think that God's anger is like ours, which is so often petty and wounded by pride. But, but no, we see elsewhere God is slow to anger. He doesn't have mood swings like we do. Right here at the start of the story, we see a God who is angry at sin. It had been hundreds of years since Adam and Eve that we get the flood. God's wrath is always measured, always appropriate, and this makes all the difference when we think about a God who one of his characteristics is he is angry at sin. And then finally, probably the biggest sort of source of confusion, we think love and wrath are opposite. I love um, John Grisham books. I don't know if anyone else likes reading John Grisham books. He's one of the most uh, famous authors around law and crime. And one of his most famous books is called A Time to Kill. Uh, in it, an Afro-Caribbean father, he discovers his daughter has been raped by two white men. And in his wrath, he kills them. And the story is powerful because as readers, although we know that this kind of justice is wrong, this vigilante justice is wrong, we somehow feel his response was appropriate, appropriate fit to the crime. A few years ago, I visited Berlin and I went round uh, one of the museums of the Holocaust. And if we go round there and we don't feel outraged, we're not loving, but we're apathetic. Similarly, a, a man who was not angry that his wife had been having an affair would show how little he loved her, not how much. And so it is with God. His wrath and his love are not opposite. He is rightly angry at sin. 
what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's so important we get a right view of God. C.S. Lewis in his Tales of Narnia describes Aslan. Aslan, the, the Jesus-like figure in the allegory, the God-like figure. And we get this wonderful account as Mr. Beaver, this talking beavers, uh, speaks to Susan. Mr. Beaver says this, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When God said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them, he was completely right and completely justified. And he will judge again. Whether we like the idea of his wrath or not, we will witness this ourselves. Jesus' only reference to Noah is in terms of this judgment in Matthew 24. It's on the screen. You can read it if you want. I'll read it out for you now. Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus talks about this. He says, but about the day or hour that is of the judgment, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the son of man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Friends, keep watch. Your Lord is coming. Will you take God seriously at his word? Our most urgent task is to get right with God and be reconciled to him. We're going to see a bit about it in a minute. We need to take judgment seriously. We need to take sin seriously for us and for our friends. And we need to take Genesis 6 seriously. It's pretty bleak at the end of Genesis 6. If we were to stop there, I'm pretty sure this wouldn't be plastered on kids' bedrooms as we went around, would it? But we get that glorious line in verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we get our second point. We've seen that God's judgment is real, total, and it's deserved. And now we see that only divine intervention can save us. Why did God save Noah? I wonder how you'd answer this as we read through the passage. I'm not going to read it all through again, but I wonder how you'd answer this. Why did God save Noah? You might point me to verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. You might point me to verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded. 7, verse 1. I have found you righteous, Noah, in your generation. Or 7 verse 5, Noah did all that God commanded him. So Noah was saved because he was good, where everyone else was evil, right? That's why God saved Noah. Is that what it's saying? In all the kids' books, he looks like a, a great chap, doesn't he? There's Noah, a bit chubby like Santa, bubbly, smiling. He's not got a big rainbow on his head, but he probably would normally. What we don't ever read about in kids' books is chapter 9. 
it would make for a slightly more graphic cartoon. Because in chapter nine, it's comic, it's laughable, but it's sad. We get to the end of the flood. God has made a new promise to never wipe out the earth in a flood again. He's blessed Noah and his family. And then in verse 20, 9 verse 20, if you want to read with me on chapter 11, we get this. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. Now there's loads we could say about this particular incident. But the point we want to say is Noah was not blameless. He was not perfect. He was not ultimately deserving of being saved. Sin was still in the world. Hebrew stories are often told slightly differently to ones today. Today, um, we often have the beginnings, which intro what's going on. We have a bit of tension. It gets resolved near the end of the end of the film or in the story with resolution at the end, with the main lessons and points often coming at the end of the stories. Hebrew stories often use a structure, however, which left the main point of story right in the middle. And the middle of this story in Genesis 6 to 9, we get a glorious verse in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. But God remembered Noah. Only divine intervention could save Noah. God remembered Noah and he was saved. Why do you think God saved you if you call yourself a Christian today? The Bible says all of us, like we looked at last week, all of us are dead in our transgressions. All of us are dead in our sins. All of us are like the inhabitants of Noah's lands, which deserved and got death until God intervenes. It's not like some of us are slightly better than others, more designed or built to respond to God. All of us are dead in our sins. All of us are rebels until God intervenes. It's like a defibrillator. We see them around everywhere at the moment, don't we, on walls. If you've got a heart failure, you cannot operate a defibrillator yourself, can you? You need God to bring you to life. And it is God alone who can bring that life. And it's not because of any inherent goodness which we bring to the table. Or maybe you've seen this video, which is going viral at the moment. It's a bit grainy, but here's a man on a beach. I'm pretty sure it's a turtle. Somebody can correct me later. And look at him. The turtle is absolutely stranded. It's dead if it's not for this guy here who flips him over and manages to point him back towards the sea. There we go. You see, that turtle could not save itself, could it? It needed intervention. That turtle was not saved because it had done anything brilliant for the man to help it. It's not like the turtle helped the man do something, and the man said, all right, I'll help you out. He didn't, and we see it's the same here with Noah. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this of Noah. He said, there was nothing, nothing in Noah why God should make a covenant with him. He was a sinner. And he proved himself to be so in the most shocking manner within a few days. He was one of the best of men, but the best of men are only men at the best. 
and can have no claim upon the favour of God. He was saved by faith, as the rest of us must be. And we all know faith is inconsistent with any claim of merit. God saved Noah not because of any good and righteous deeds he did, but because Noah trusted in him and his plan. When reading the Old Testament, it's often helpful to see the stories of his characters where they're mentioned in the New Testament. It may help us understand them, what they mean in light of Jesus. And in Hebrews, book of Hebrews, we get Noah mentioned. He's mentioned in the great list of men and women of faith. It's meant to be on there, but I'll read it for you because it's not. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And we see Noah's faith littered throughout, don't we? We have seen it, how he obeyed and did everything just as God commanded him. He didn't question, and he must have looked an utter fool, didn't he? Building a giant boat in the middle of a desert. Noah trusted God in his words. He wasn't perfect, but he did trust God. And last week we saw the promise in the midst of the curses in Genesis 3.15. There was this promise, or this curse really, to the devil. It said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And there we get the, the who of God's plan. A man will come and crush the devil's head. And here in the story of Noah, we get a little bit of the how. Trust in God's word and in his plan for saving you, and you will be granted righteousness. That is, you'll be made right before God and saved. We need to remember this. It is all God's initiation. How often do we forget that? I know I do regularly. I try and save myself. In my head, I go, I know I can do nothing to make God love me more. But then in my heart and my actions, I so often betray that. Some of us can get quite uncomfortable with this truth that it's all God's work. We want to bring something to the table ourselves. But any other way of thinking about our salvation makes God less God. So our response instead can only be one of praise. Praising God that he chose to save anyone at all. Think back to that turtle. We're like that turtle, pretty stranded. <coughs> Praise God if you follow Jesus today, he's dug up the sand around you and shoved you into the water, he saved you. He could have got to the time of Noah and gone, okay, done, off we go. But instead he chose to forge a people for himself, one who would time and time again rebel, but one who he would ultimately save through Jesus. God is still at work to save the world that he loves and it's all his work. Finally then, the story of Noah points towards a better future to come. Seems a little bit repetitive three weeks in, doesn't it? Genesis 3, mankind rebels, some new laws are given, and they're rightly cursed. Genesis 4, more sin, more rebellion. Here in Genesis 6 with Noah, it's pretty similar as we see history repeating itself again and again and again. And after the flood in chapter 9, I encourage you to read it later, we get some more laws. We get Noah and his son's sin, and we get some more curses. Now, having panned kids' books earlier, here is one, which is great and well worth getting, The greatest, Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung. And I'm just going to read to you a little bit 
there it is, about the story of Noah, because it's really helpful. And if you want a short version of what I've been saying today, I'll just read this. This is what it says. God was going to start over with his creation. He was angry with the world that hated him, but he was still at work to save the world that he loved. That's why he rescued Noah and his family. God wanted to give his people another shot. God was going to start over with a new world and Noah was going to be a new kind of Adam. The problem was that Noah was too much like the first Adam. It didn't take too long after they got out of the boat for Noah to do some pretty bad stuff himself. He trusted God enough to build an ark when everyone laughed at him, but it turns out he could just be as foul as anybody else. Even one of Noah's sons got cursed, just like everything got cursed back in the garden. History was repeating itself, whether it was Adam or Noah, the first world in the beginning or the second world after the flood, people just couldn't get things right. Feels like we need an epilogue to the story, doesn't it? And so it's a good thing we're in week three of 12. <laughs> and it's a good thing that book has another 100 pages or so going for it. And we get a glorious hint in this story. We didn't read it, so I'll read it now in chapter eight, verse 20. We get a glorious hint about how the cycle is going to end. Noah's come out the ark. He's been saved by God. And then we get this in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he, scattered sac he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God then marks his new promise with a sign. The rainbow we see in all the kids' stories reminds us of God's promise here. It's a great thing to remember. But notice that God's promise, his covenant here, was in response to a pure sacrifice. It's a, it's a foreshadowing. It points us towards that God, who must find a remedy to sin, will find it in a greater sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of his son, as has been predicted in Genesis 3. Just like Noah obeyed God and climbed onto the ark, so Jesus obeyed his father and climbed onto the cross. And God's wrath, his right and just wrath, is poured out on his son, Jesus. God hates sin so much that he personally dealt with it. He's not a distant, vengeful God like some people like to paint him. He loves us so much that he chose to break into the world and die in our place. So friends, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not today, the, the right response here is to throw yourself on Jesus. Only divine intervention can save us. And by trusting in him and his ways, we can be saved. And if you don't follow Jesus, hear that loud and clear without trusting in Jesus. The Bible makes it clear you will be like those in the flood, drowning, dead and separated from God forever. <coughs> But if, like Noah, despite your brokenness, you throw yourself onto Jesus and trust in him and what he has done, you will be saved. Jesus succeeds where Adam and Noah failed. We're going to see many other men and women who fail. He totally obeyed the Father. He was totally perfect so he could eventually judge sin rightly and crush Satan. And Jesus coming back means there is an end to judgment. 
this judgment we saw in the flood. When he comes back, when he judges for the final time, creation will this time be restored perfectly. Sin will be done with. And a new Adam, Jesus, will lead humanity. Often our applications, the things we want to take away, maybe from a sermon can be quite practical. Today, it's probably more the mental one. A challenge to how we think. Having a right understanding of our sin. A right awareness of what we deserve. What all of us deserve. It changes how we think about God. Remember back, how we think about God is so important. And we pray that now leads us to pray. So throw yourself on Jesus. Only divine intervention can save us. In a sense, the story of Noah is a little bit like a children's story in that its lessons are simple enough for a child to understand. God hates sin. God punishes unrepentant sinners. But he offers a way out through trusting in his son, Jesus, who died and took on the full judgment for sin so we don't have to. So we're going to sing in response. It's the right way to respond. We're going to sing a very familiar song, but it's littered with truth. It's all an act of grace. It's undeserved. That's what grace means, an undeserved gift. It's all divine intervention. All of us were lost. All of us were wretches. But if you follow Jesus today, you can sing loudly. You can sing proudly that you have now been found. And you're going to be able to sing his praises for thousands of years to come. So let's stand together before we share communion together and sing this song.